This program is sponsored by Cane Vineyard and Winery. For more information, go to Cane5.com. Welcome to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonney, and we are coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You can listen live every Monday at noon at heritageradionetwork.com, and you can also download the podcast every week on iTunes. I am very lucky to be sitting next to Sabella Court today. Sabella is a really famous. You're, you're super famous at this no. point, Sabelle. <laughs> um, a stylist, collector, author, and the interiors editor at Vogue Australia. And just to give you an idea of how lucky we are to have you here today, this is these are the places you've been recently, and you're just now sitting in the seat next to me. You just came back from Japan, Transylvania, Turkey, Milan, and then you've spent some time in Philly, Long Island, Connecticut, and Sag Harbor recently. Yeah, just in the last five days. <laughs> so the fact that you're awake and sitting next to me, I feel very lucky. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So we were talking a little bit before the break about a project you're working on, but I, I really want to back people up and give them an idea of how you got where you are. And I want to start really, really early because mm-hmm. I think you're a fascinatingly creative person. And I always think there's got to be a really interesting backstory to that. So I want to know a little bit about the things or how it was like for you growing up. Like what yeah. was it the creative household you grew up in and what were some of your favorite things to do when you were little? I did. um, My father is a residential builder and my mum was really into art. Um, She never considered herself an artist, but I always thought she was one. Um, And we were surrounded by craft tables and courses. I did, I think from a young age, I did every course under the sun from paper making to box making to calligraphy, pottery, you know, I was into everything. And I talked about one of my earliest memories in my first book, um, of collecting shells from about age three, two, three, four. Um, we used to go up north from Sydney to this beautiful beach and I'd just spend all day on my hands and knees going up and down the shoreline picking up shells. Um, so I had that always um, and haven't stopped collecting shells since, although I don't do it when there's a sign <laughs> saying don't pick them up. <laughs> it's changed a bit since then. And then I suppose the other earliest collection was ribbons I've always had really long hair and I was addicted to ribbons as a child um well and still love them now so I was just surrounded by that for forever um and I have two brothers and a sister as well and they they're all in pretty creative fields as well that's great mm. do you think and you grew up in Australia do you yeah. do you think that there's anything about being from Australia or at least the way of life there that sort of set you apart from what it might have been like to grow up somewhere else oh most definitely um you know Sydney particularly is a beach-based community, and um, I spend a lot of time there. It's a very nice lifestyle. I mean, I lived in the States for 10 years, and I missed that um, accessibility to the water. Um, I think that changes your perception of of what life is like, and, you know, there's different light down there. The water's really... I, I swim every day in the summertime, um, maybe morning and evening if I can, um, and it's very easy to do that. So most definitely it affects how you look at how you look at life, how you um, perceive light and all sorts of things like that. So you went to college in Sydney, mm-hmm. yes, and then you made the decision to move to New York. What was that decision like and how scary well, was that? Funnily enough, I didn't really make the decision because <laughs> <laughs> I finished um, university. I actually have a history degree 
Yeah, in a, mainly right. Australian history too. Yeah, I love research. Um, I wish I'd prepared more questions about Australian history. <laughs> oh, no, no, no pop quizzes, no pop quizzes. Um, so I finished there, but I had started working at Vogue in the meantime. Actually, in the, I think I was in the fashion department for a while at 20. And I um, ended up uh, assisting the... the style editor at the time at Vogue Living had just left and she'd gone freelance and I met with her and started working the same day that I met her um, and worked with her for about a year and after that it just got so busy you know styling at that time there weren't many stylists around either and there weren't many good ones around um, and it was it was a new kind of format um, and it was a new thing for people to think that they needed a stylist often the photographer would have a prop cupboard uh, and it was you know, so this whole new role was happening and, you know, today we're seeing the the word stylist used much more frequently and almost becoming a bit mainstream, which is really interesting to see. But at that time, there weren't a lot around and I went out on my own, um, you know, about 21, had my own company or 22 and was doing all my own jobs. And then... America started to look at Australia um, for who was creating these things. There were some fantastic magazines, and one I worked for was called Murray Claire Lifestyle. And we were changing how things were shot. I was working with Donna Hay, who's one of my best friends, and we were the first um, interior stylist and food stylist that had got together and done these huge collaborations. So we were doing massive sort of lifestyle shoots and shooting with fabulous photographers. Um, when I got to the States for shooting all these catalogues I mean I was getting flown over all the time but on an editorial level or even on the catalogue level you'd walk in and they'd have all your tear sheets in front of you so Australia was really being watched at the time so after one of those many shoots in the states I just stayed (laughs) so I didn't make the decision to move here at all so I just basically had locked up my house and stayed over here and then was still here 10 years later (laughs) Oh my god! So I want to back up a little bit then. If you, so, if you were a history major, how did you make that progression? Were you already styling or working and no, things like that then? I was finishing off my degree and didn't really know what I was going to do with it. I didn't. I never planned to be um, really use the history degree. I just had a really nice time, uh, and then just fell into Vogue. My girlfriend. Um, Edwina McCann, who's now the editor of Vogue Australia, was working at Vogue at the time, and she's like, "Come along, check it out. You might like it." No big so, deal. Work yeah, at Vogue, no, yeah, you know, so no big deal. So <laughs> I was in the fashion department for a very short time. I was like, "Okay, this is not what I want at all." Um, and Vogue Entertaining at that time uh, was an amazing magazine as well. Some people might remember it. It was just beautiful. Sharon Storia was the editor at the time, so even though I was at Vogue fashion office I was always in at the Vogue entertaining office so eventually I actually just moved over there and worked for them as well do you feel I don't know if it's a distinctly American thing but there's sort of a conversation that gets batted around a lot with design bloggers about how there's a difference between people who are like fashion people and people Mm. who are home people oh they're completely different do you feel like are you a home person I mean I I would assume that based on what you do but some you never know yeah, no, I'm, I'm a home person. <laughs> it's such a different industry, completely different industry. It really is. I used mm. to work um, in the Condé Nast building at House and Garden, mm-hmm. and I remember you could you could literally just point out the girls who worked at Vogue versus the people who were going up to one of the shelter publications. Oh, yeah. It's very different. Yeah, completely different. Very different shoes involved in both. Yeah. <laughs> I wear flats a lot nowadays. There's too much running around. I think fashion people just sit down or something. I think it's a lot of phone answers. It's a lot of phone yeah. calls, a lot of phone calls, calling in things. Very, in. very sky high heels. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how they get anything done in those shoes. Look, I'm too disheveled for fashion, how I How do think. they get to work in those shoes? That was always my concern, know. was how did the girls who answer the phones right? get there? Not, not the girls who answer no, phones, no. though. They're the ones in the big heels. So anyway, backing up from that, mm. I, I want to know about your first, your first styling job in New York. Oh, <laughs> oh you first, made a face. <laughs> no, well, I'm just trying. My memory's not very good nowadays. Um, <laughs> the first styling job in America. Okay. Might not be the first, but it's around the first. I was shooting oh yeah no this is the first I was shooting with the photographer Jeff Lang and they had asked him to find a stylist from Australia this um and he put forward about five portfolios and they chose mine we were actually shooting in Savannah and I had been to in Georgia New- yeah oh wow and I had been to New York before and I Oh, maybe Chicago as well but I didn't know it that well and basically he was already there or everyone was meeting in Savannah so I ended up getting you know jumping on the plane and about four plane rides later landed in the in Savannah with you know and tried I think I even had to rent a car and drive to the shoot and it's on the different side of the road and then yeah and then got to Savannah and had the most beautiful time. I love Georgia. So, and fell in love with it there, all the finger wolves and the clams and the oysters and the Spanish moss. And no, it was beautiful. And it was for a catalogue that I don't know if it's around anymore, J. Jill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they just used to do beautiful shoots. So I ended up shooting with them a lot. I really liked the creative director on it. That's great. So how much, I mean, I, I always associate you a bit more with sort of home home styling and like these really sort of over the top, really creative projects, but how much like catalog work like that have you done? Um, I did some catalog work. I was a little opposed to doing a lot of it because it, I had seen a lot of photographers shoot that were really creative, shoot a lot of catalog and I mm-hmm. felt like they lost their eye a little bit at the end of it because suddenly it was about can you see all of that chair we're going to shoot into a corner and it was about selling a product rather than creating a vision or an illusion or just beauty it became about selling everything so I did I would do it for pocket money that's that's a really (laughs) Um, interesting distinction I do some of it but I was I didn't like doing a lot of it yeah I, I felt like it was a bit of a soul destroyer that's, that's a really interesting distinction. I've never thought about the fact that you really, especially photographers and stylists working in, in sort of a retail environment like that, you really have to think about it as a product and not mm. so much as sort of a style decision. How would you sort of describe the distinction between the styling you do now versus the styling you do there? Because I think for most people, they're not very familiar with the idea or the art of styling as a profession. I mean, yeah. even myself, I feel like that's only really a word I've seen included in credits as like the last five or six years. I think people forgot that there was like a stylist involved in everything. Yeah, no, that's true. And I suppose that's what I was touching on um, before. I'd like to know. I'd like to think that we had more credit than that. Yeah, because no, <laughs> it's mean, really, really hard work. Um, it's like moving every single day of your life. I mean, it's a lot of boxes and bags, and um, and it's it's labour intensive. Everyone has a stylist back, which is not a good one. Um, <laughs> and I recommend doing Pilates if you want to be a stylist. <laughs> um, but. What was the question again? Well, basically, <laughs> I guess we'll back it up to like the idea of what what do you think a stylist really does, and yeah. what's the difference between what you do Doing creatively versus like we're talking about catalog shooting yeah. before. Well, I suppose um, now I don't do as much styling. I I style all my own books. Mm-hmm. Um, we do all original content for all the books, so that's pretty intensive. But the nice thing about that um, and the difference to what I used to do is it's whatever I want. We're not selling a product. It's just about 
what I'm into that day. You know, we have I, I work on a let very loose format, so I don't have I know I have to do thirty pictures or or whatever it happens to be on the day, but I'm not sitting there going, Okay, we have this plate for this shot with this lounge you know it doesn't it doesn't actually matter what happens on the day um and I like to I mean as far as formatting it I'm I would like to do maybe four big room shots and 20 details that's about as formatted as it gets and then if you're working for an advertising company or a catalog or a, or a magazine it's a very strict storyline it's how many shots you've got to do in the day and what product you're selling, which is all great as well. But after sort of 16 years of doing that, when I moved back to Australia four years ago, I was just like, I don't think I have it in me anymore to do this for other people. So mm-hmm. I restructured how I work. I completely restructured how I work. Same industry, same, same things, but um, just different. Well, let's talk about what inspired that move. You were in New York for nine or ten years? Yeah, ten years. And then decided to move back home to Sydney. What, what inspired, what was the catalyst for that big change? Um, the beach <laughs> was a big catalyst. I had been looking at opening a store in New York um, and had looked for a space for a couple of years uh, and found a fantastic space on Green Street that was an old iron forges, three generations, and all their stuff in there. It was absolutely beautiful. I actually cried when I walked into this space. And I negotiated it with one of the sons that they would leave everything as is and I was just going to create the shop on on all the things that were left over because there was big barrels of hand-forged iron um, ivy leaves that were from balustrades and there was Putnam ladders lining one of the walls. I mean, it was beautiful. Well, I thought it was beautiful. Um, so I worked on that that uh, sort of contract for about 10 months and then went home to think about it because it was five years with a five-year option. Mm-hmm. And I got home and it was September. I was only going to be there for five days just to sign this lease. Beautiful weather. I was swimming. I was on jet skis. I was <laughs> hanging out. I was having long lunches and I was with my family. And I thought it, it was actually... Within 24 hours of being there, I went, no, I'm not going. I'm not doing this. I can't do 10 more years in New York, and this is what I want to do. So it was this really easy decision. It, was, it didn't even feel like a decision. It felt like it was written in the stars. I think the right things usually feel like you yeah. just kind of slide effortlessly into them. They don't feel like it's like a really, you know, hem and haw type yeah, of decision. Yeah, I didn't have to, yeah, I'm an hour of anything. Is there anything that you miss about New York? I know you visit all the time, but yeah, I about suppose, living here on a day-to-day basis. I suppose because I get the opportunity to be here a lot, I don't miss it so much. But, I mean, one thing I would like to do more is I love all the museums. I love all the galleries. And I miss those shows that you can go into all the time. The Met, the MoMA, you know, the Cooper Hewitt. They're like the Frick. All mm-hmm. of those are so special to me. And I've seen so many... Um, um, exhibitions there that have influenced shoots and ideas and color palettes and everything so that's a big that's a big thing for me well I want to know a little bit we're, we're going to take a quick break and then I want to know about how you still stay connected to these cities that you don't live in I'm, I'm very intrigued by this so we'll be back after the break About our planet. For more information, go to king5.com. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to After the Jump on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm Grace Bonney, and today I'm with stylist, author, all-around creative, amazing woman, Sabella Court. And we're talking about sort of all the way you've had your hand and so many different aspects mm. of sort of the creative industry. And right before the break, we were talking about you were in New York for 10 years and then moved back home to Australia. And one of the things I'm constantly amazed by is how you are so up to date and plugged in on the coolest things in every city that you don't live in. I don't know how you do this. I can barely keep up to date with what's happening in my own borough. And I, I think I first met you when you were in town for the book you wrote called A Stylist Guide to New York City. And you did a tour with anthropology and walked people around. And I was there and we met some of our readers were also there as a tour. And they were like, why, why are you here, Grace? Like, don't, don't you know all these places? And <laughs> I was like, no, I don't know any of these places. I don't know how I don't know these stores. But somehow a person who lives in Australia knows all this stuff. So I'm dying to know, how do you sort of stay up to date with everything? Oh, yeah. I think I have this inbuilt radar for finding stores. I am... Um, a, a very enthusiastic shopper, um, <laughs> to say the least. You should have a but, business card that says that, just enthusiastic <laughs> shopper. <laughs> uh, but I love finding out about new new things and people doing really cool stuff. So I read a lot and could kind of collect that information. And then you always ask. So if you're in one store that you really like, especially if it's an owner, the owner's there, mm-hmm. um, you can get so much information out of them to where to go after that as well and I know that when I'm in my store I always like giving people the other tips of where they should go whether it's eating at a really good restaurant or going to another store that a friend owns or you know hooking them up with an artist or whatever it happens to be so I always make sure I'm asking the right people and most more often than not if I can stay in a smaller hotel or um, a boutique hotel where I know the concierge is going to be great or there's going to be other people where you can sit and chat in a communal area. You get a lot of information in that way as well. That's smart. I'm always mm. way too nervous to ask people that. I'm always worried that, especially in New York, that shopkeepers will be competitive with each other and not want to suggest anything and that I'll somehow step on their toes yeah. by asking I mean, that question. you do have to be quite sensitive. Um, but And sometimes it's right and sometimes it's not. But you can generally feel them out. And if they know you're just enthusiastic and passionate that tends to show quite clearly and you can you can ask away. That's good. Well, we mentioned, the, I just mentioned the Stylist Guide to New York City, which as a New Yorker, I still use on a regular basis. <laughs> but you've written three other books. You wrote Etc., which is creating beautiful interiors with the things you love. And you wrote Nomad, a global approach to interior style, which is a beautiful oh, book. Thank you. And you are coming out this September, which for American audiences will be called Life of a Bowerbird. Yeah. I have no idea how you find time to write these books. When are you writing these books? Um, While you're asleep? (laughs) Yes, my assistants laugh about that (laughs) whilst they're sleeping. Um, I enjoy writing the books so much, especially after I had never written a book before, etc. And it was such a beautiful experience to me for me my mother had recently died and I got the opportunity to actually have time to sit down and think about her and think about collective memory um, and spoke to my brothers and sisters about all the things that we had done when we were growing up and how they remembered it and so much of it was a shared memory um, a shared correct memory or or you know the same the same memory so it was really lovely to do that and I suppose some of those emotions keep getting tied up with the books and it's a really happy time for me. So I do squeeze them in and I really enjoy writing about all the stuff that I get to see. I have 
amazing opportunities to travel the world and spend a lot of time on planes. <laughs> <laughs> so I do a lot of writing um, during that time as well. And then, you know, I shoot with my brother. So we tend to shoot in the summer, in our summer holidays, which is January. Um, it's usually really hot, but I close the store and we just slam out all this content and have a really nice time doing it. So for me, it's not my main sort of job, but I just enjoy it immensely. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the shop. The shop, I think, for those of us in the States, was something that I think we're all probably most familiar with mm. when it when it comes to you and your work. Your shop um, is Society Inc. in Paddington in Australia. Tell us a little bit about how that got started. And I've heard that it's I've heard in other interviews that it's your favorite project yeah. or favorite thing you've done. Tell, it, tell um, me why. It uh, it's such a lovely spot. It's uh, I bought this building. It's on a corner. It was built in the 1860s. It's got all this character, and I basically just ripped everything out of there and started with the basics. And there's pictures of it in etc. that I can't even believe that we got to shoot that because now it's got so much stuff in it. <laughs> you can't get to any of those corners anymore. Um, but it is one of my favourite things. I'm able to put whatever I like in there. Uh, we try to work on sort of the idea that it's a hardware and haberdashery, but I tend to push those definitions to a new limit that make may or may make sense to, may or may not make sense to some people. But I'm able to put all my finds from all over the world uh, in there. So it's a little bit of magic and fantasy. And, you know, if things are going pear-shaped, you'll often find me in the shop changing the window. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you have a place to house all those things that you Mm. found. I mean, I can only dream of of the amazing things that you found. I want to know what what are some of the weirdest things that you found that that maybe exist in the shop or that people haven't seen yet? Um, I really get into... I find these in um, like India and some of the Asian countries is handmade kids' toys. So they're things you usually buy off the street. It might be a snake that's made out of paper that sort of unfolds and it's on a cotton reel that the cotton reel moves with a piece of string and, you know, you get these sort of crazy contraps that, I don't know, they work in such unusual ways, but they all sell so quickly. Like people will come in and just buy the whole entire lot I always feel a bit sad that not more people got to experience these sort of unusual things that I find. But it can be anything. I mean, I was in um, Bodrum recently and bought all these leather amulets and sort of just leather knotted ties for your wrist. Um, and they they were really nice to have in the store, but they sold very quickly too. Do you ever, I always wonder if shop owners feel this way, and you may be conflicted because you're a stylist, but do you feel like you want those things to go to like quote unquote regular non-industry people? Or I always worry, I'll go into stores that are, have something beautiful and I'll watch someone who's clearly a stylist or interior mm-hmm. designer come in and just like scoop an scoop. armful. And it, it makes me die a little bit inside because I think like, what if there could have been this one person who came in for whom that one object would have meant so much, but yeah. now it's just going to be like styled with 20 other different things on a no, page. No, I do feel feel like that um especially when yeah all the one person buys all the same stuff and we get a lot of people in who work for window displays and other shops and you know that it's just going there and it's not going to have the it's just switching shops yeah it's just (laughs) switching shops pretty much um yeah but i have i have that i have that too and we have such lovely people that come in the store because it is destination everyone Mm -hmm. pretty much knows about it it's in a residential area there's not any other shops around and everyone comes in with this sort of lovely resume. So it's always nice for them to buy something and take a piece away. That sounds good. Well, yeah. I, I have one more question about hunting. I want to know if there's anything sort of elusive that you're always hunting for that maybe you haven't found yet. Like, there's there one secret piece you're hoping you'll stumble on one day? I usually have a list going. 
and it might take me a couple of years to find it but there's I'm really into um, hardware and lighting so I'm constantly looking for you know the one piece of a, a piece of lighting that I've been looking for for same my bathroom at the moment I finally found it the other day and my bathroom's getting renovated whilst I'm away Hopefully it's finished, but uh, that light that I'd been looking for I only found a couple of weeks ago, so it would be nice to see that in place. So I keep things in that in mind because I am really into salvage and upcycling and not buying everything new. I would prefer to find it cheaper at a flea market or, you know, the Salvation Army or, you know, thrift stores or someone could give it to you, but that sort of swapping of... Um, of product and materials I think is really nice to then incorporate into your interiors. What are some of your favorite salvage spaces both at home in Australia and here in New York? Um, at home I work with um, I actually work with quite a few guys that source things for me. Oh, okay. um, they do have stores as well but anyone can call them and you just sort of tell them what you're looking for and they go out and and find it. Um, there's some great stores down in Melbourne. One's called The Junk Company. Um, and there's another one called Tyler and Graham that are really good. Uh, and then here, I love the 25th Street um, flea market. That's mm-hmm. one of my favourite places. It's such a good resource for textiles and hardware and, I don't know, knives or anything that you're looking for. That's one like of my can, faves. you can actually stumble on a deal there every now yeah. and then. It requires a lot of digging, but something tells me you're fine with digging. No, I'm good with the digging. And then there's <laughs> great, you know, good old things, old good things up on, I think, 24th. Yes. Mm-hmm. They're really good. And Paula Rubenstein. I mean, you're getting into a different price bracket mm-hmm. here, but they're still really great. You know, they're really great stores. And before it was cool. And then I suppose over on, on Atlantic, you've got Dar mm-hmm. and a few others there as well. What are your thoughts on, on altering vintage pieces? This is something that, I don't know if this is a weird American thing, but this is a debate that happens every single week on my mm-hmm. website is people yell at other people or me for like promoting the idea of getting a vintage piece and then painting it or reupholstering it or changing it Oh, the before way. and afters? Yeah. yeah. I follow those. <laughs> exactly. Uh, oh, look, I, I think it's up, you know, it's an opportunity to change something. I wouldn't hesitate to put on a new lick of paint on something I mean you look back at some of the designers like Dorothy Draper who loved painting everything (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't think you should you should hesitate doing that if if it's a key design piece that is recognizable on a collector's piece I don't think you would paint it Um, you do a soft restoration but uh, you know hopefully that's recognized as well Um, but no go ahead go go ahead I mean that's just how it should happen are there any pieces that you've made over for a project that wasn't a personal project that you then wanted to keep for yourself? Oh, yeah, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I went back to Australia with a 40-foot container. And that wasn't even, you know, that wasn't beds and things. That was just boxes of beautiful props and unusual pieces of furniture that I'd had on shoots that I just could not let go of. That sounds like a pretty good problem to have. Though. I feel yeah, like your life is probably constantly full of new things to fall in love yeah, with. Yeah, it is. And I suppose that's nice. That's what the shop is really nice for is I don't mind passing it on to these people, these lovely people that come to my store. Um, you know, it's getting a new, new, new loved and um, a new owner is not a bad thing. So I do have the opportunity to buy 
all these beautiful things and then pass them on. That's true. I think that's the nice thing about being somebody who has a store or has some sort of publication, whether it's a magazine or a TV mm. show or something, is you feel like you get to live with that thing for yeah. a little bit and then you get to let it go. Yeah. And there's something really nice about that feeling. Yeah, and even recording it. So, because we shoot obviously a lot of props for the book, I have to be careful not to not shoot the same prop <laughs> that I shot on it, you know, in another book. So you're getting that constant idea that oh, I can have a little go of this, I can record it, it's in the book, and then it can move on. I love it. So I want to change pace really quick before we end and talk about what are some of your favorite hobbies or activities outside of your life? I feel like it seems like your personal life and your work life are very much intertwined, yep. but I'm always curious to hear what people do that's not related to their job to un- to unwind, relax, re-inspire yourself. Dance till dawn. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the best answer ever. <laughs> what type of music do you dance to? Uh, well, I like all the old disco tunes <laughs> and a bit of, I mean, I grew up mainly in the eighties for that kind of time. So I'm up for any toe tapping tune that, that will keep me out really late. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So if you had a chance to travel or go, go anywhere, I guess, for a personal vacation that had nothing to do with buying or sourcing or work, what would that trip be? Where would it be? And what would it include? That's a really hard one because I always travel, I travel in such a, unusual way now though it is all work but I suppose if I wasn't allowed to work um maybe it'd just be a beach holiday up north of Sydney something super casual places that I know really well and just sit on the beach and some swim. disco tunes yeah for sure <laughs> on my iPod so before we head out I want to give people updates on where they can find you online mm-hmm. for for me my favorite place to find you is on Twitter yep. and your handle Sabella Court and there's also sabellacourt.com mm-hmm. right and then for those of us in America here we can look for Life of a Bowerbird this September yep this September that's great and then the shop website is the societyinc.com.au and then I'm a big Instagram fan so check that out that's just Sabella Court that's everyone to check you out everywhere you're just an endless endless source of inspiration so thanks thanks for taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk with me today thanks (laughs) thanks for having me Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.